You are listening to audio from Riverside Church. If you would like to check out more resources, please visit riverside.church. Good morning. On Thursday, I was in Montgomery, Alabama, and it was 75 and sunny. This weather is exquisite, isn't it? Good grief. Do not approve. I'm probably going to need house lights up because I'm getting a little old to read. Perfect. I was thinking about the weather uh, this fourth Sunday of Lent. Uh, I know Lent wasn't like invented in Michiana, but it feels particularly fitting because of this cycle of like it's starting to get warm after about four months of deep freeze, but it's not like immediately warm. It takes a little bit of time. We go through these like cycles of freezing and thawing and freezing and thawing. And if you're like me, the the, the entryway to your house is caked in mud because you're your kids don't know there's mud all over their shoes. Um, this this um, is not the prettiest time of year in Michiana, right? It's a little uh, mud and muck filled. Really had to pronounce that one carefully. Uh, it, but here's the thing that I <laughs> some of you some of you heard it. Um, here's the thing though that I've been thinking about. Um, that this, that this period of time where it's freezing and thawing and freezing and thawing and all of the like earth that's been rock solid for months starts to get really gross, that that is the first sign of new life, right? And that, that you can't get to the tulips unless you have the mud and the gross. And it seems like a particularly fitting metaphor for Lent, that our hearts over time gets frozen solid toward God. And that it's not just one day we have frozen cold hearts toward God and the next day they're soft and tender and alive in Him, but that there is this process of freezing and thawing and freezing and thawing that happens to us in the spiritual rhythms of our life. And as we go through this week by week, Uh, Jesus saying, you've heard it said this, but I'm even taking it further than that. If you've been paying attention, if we've been listening to the Spirit, it's likely that some of that mud and gross from the sort of cold and frozen parts of our life start to like come up to the surface. Really want to encourage you to embrace that. If there is mud on the entryway of your life, that is a sign that new life is around the corner. That is a sign that God still does this thing. When our hearts are cold, they don't stay cold. That they warm up eventually and that that's the fertile ground for the new life that God is bringing in us. I want to encourage you to embrace it. Embrace the potential that God, when the gross stuff starts to come up to the surface, that that's how God cultivates the fruitfulness of the Spirit in us. Today's message um, feels to me like part one of two. We probably could read it all together here in the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus is addressing how we're called to be and how we're called to live in light of a world that's full of hatred and violence. Dave next week is going to preach specifically about Jesus' famous line about loving your enemies. Uh, But this passage, I think, sets that one up. I think it's framed by the one, uh, next week's sermon is framed by the one that we're considering today. 
I think they're both about the nature of our relationships with so-called enemies. So even though uh, this little footnote or the little uh, subtitle in your Bible probably, probably divides the two texts, that those weren't inspired. Those were just put in there by editors. So I think we can read the whole thing as one big message. Love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you is the start of Dave's passage for next week. But I really think it's the center of both of these passages put together. So Dave's going to take it forward from there next week. This week we're going to sort of work backwards through it. So love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you is not in the text that I'm about to read, but it is the point of the text that I'm about to read. These two passages are probably some of those famous verses in the Sermon on the Mount, maybe aside from the Lord's Prayer and the Beatitudes. So let's read this text together. This is Matthew 5, 38-42. Jesus said, You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Let's pray together. God, we gather in this uh, space this morning around your word, trusting that your spirit uh, is present and active even before we walked in this space together this morning. We pray that you would tune our hearts to you, uh, that we would be in tune and in step with the spirit uh, who is leading us into deeper faithfulness as we consider what it is you've said to us and to your people throughout all the ages. It's your name we pray. Amen. So I was, as I said, I was in Montgomery uh, on Thursday at the end of um, a civil rights immersion trip that I, I lead with Notre Dame students. It's also the same trip that we took as a church, 19 of us took uh, this summer, and I think Bethel did one as well. So basically all of Michigan has been doing this uh, over, I think we're all tired of the cold, just headed to the south. So it's a trip that we've done for several years at Notre Dame. And we take students uh, through the South to major sites of the Civil Rights Movement. And uh, as I was sort of preparing for today and looking ahead, I thought, well, I'm going to get about 50 illustrations for turning the other cheek as I journey through the South, looking at all of these sites from the Civil Rights Movement. And that's because the, the bulk of the Civil Rights Movement was framed around a commitment to nonviolence framed around a, a commitment to non-retaliation, uh, the demonstration of love as a way to dismantle violence and hatred. Uh, and so I think, I think it's sort of summed up in this very famous quote from Dr. King from a 1967 speech that says, where do we go from here? And he says this, and I think that you'll hear much of Jesus' words in this. Um, he says, the ultimate weakness of violence is that it is a descending spiral, begetting, meaning giving birth to, the very thing it seeks to destroy. Instead of diminishing evil, it multiplies it. Through violence, you can murder the liar, but you can't murder the lie, nor establish the truth. Through violence, you may murder the hater, but you don't murder hate. In fact, violence merely increases hate. And so it goes. Returning violence for violence multiplies violence, 
adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Dr. King is in step with Jesus when he is saying these words here. Dr. King's words are are calling us to pay attention to the same things that Jesus is calling us to pay attention to in this text. Two things. First, that we live in a world of pervasive and unimaginable violence. And second, that there is a call on people of faith to disrupt the cycle of violence. And two, by our way of living out a way of love, to interrupt and to challenge the violent status quo of our world. I don't think it's any secret that we live in a violent world, right? We can, we can look at it every single day. We, are, we, we bear witness to global wars that threaten not just the places where people are fighting those wars, but threaten countries and nations and continents all around. We see it in society all around us as places that should be safe, places like schools and churches and shopping centers become epicenters of death. We see it in our homes. We see it in our relationships. We see it uh, even in people doing violence to themselves. It's a world of unimaginable violence seemingly everywhere you look. And that's a world then that causes us, I think, to live in fear. The places that should be safe are no longer safe. Violence is around every corner, potentially. The fear of anxiety, uh, fear and anxiety of violence, uh, that it might be coming to find us or it might be coming to find those we love, is something that many of us know firsthand. Something that many of us know all too well. It's also the case that fear makes us do all manner of things that actually destroy the possibility of faith. When we are when we are reacting out of fear of violence, we often make it worse. We live in a, as Dr. King would say, a return violence for violence kind of world. As Jesus would say, uh, I think we live in a so-called eye for an eye world. A world that believes that revenge and retribution will make us feel better. So when we read Jesus saying, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, There's a natural way of reading that that makes it seem like permission for revenge. You've heard it said an eye for an eye. Sounds like that there was some sort of permission for revenge. But I actually think we need to challenge that way of reading it. It might be natural for us to read it that way in a world that feels full of violence and that, that is full of fear of violence. But I don't think that's what Jesus was meaning. Because an eye for an eye was not permission for revenge. An eye for an eye was not permission for revenge. It was actually trying to restrain the violent impulses in each of us. So so let me try to unpack that just a little bit. In the church world that I grew up in, eye for an eye really was about revenge and retribution. Meaning that there was this implicit understanding that the Old Testament said that revenge was okay. But then Jesus changes it to say, revenge used to be okay, but it's not anymore, so now you turn the other cheek. But I actually think that's not correct for for two reasons. And that is that the God of the Old Testament is fully revealed to us in Jesus. 
And if our theology says that that God is fully revealed to us in Jesus, then to see Jesus is to see, see God. And so Jesus is not saying, well, that didn't work. Let me try something new. Secondly, because at the beginning of this sermon, we hear Jesus saying that he is fulfilling the law, we also know that this is not a left turn. There's not an Old Testament, New Testament divide because Jesus says, I'm fulfilling it. Not altering it, not editing it. It is the fulfillment of it. So Jesus is doing something very specific here. Jesus is revealing to us the heart that God has always had for the kind of people God has always wanted us to be. In every part of this Sermon on the Mount, this is true, that that Jesus is revealing to us the heart that God has always had for the kind of people God has always wanted us to be. And so the point here is that eye for an eye is not permission for revenge, but it's actually a way of resisting the escalation of violence. It's a way of ensuring that we don't end up in that descending spiral of violence that Dr. King talked about that ends in mutually assured destruction. Meaning that if you take my eye, I can take your head. An eye for an eye is to say, actually, you can't do that. The the person behind the prohibition is what we talked about the last time I was up here. I think there's significant reason to believe that the Old Testament law of an eye for an eye was actually a way of preventing murder and execution. But Jesus is saying preventing murder and execution is, is not enough. That is not the point of this in its entirety. Because it is also about the kind of people that we were supposed to become. It's It's not just about not doing certain kinds of action, restraining murder, but it is a way of life that is animated by the character of God for the sake of God's kingdom. And so returning violence for violence doesn't help us become particular kinds of people. It doesn't help love take root in a world of violence. As Dr. King says, it just adds to the darkness. So we need something else. We need something to disrupt the violent status quo of the world. And what Jesus says explicitly in this text we're going to look at uh, next week is implicitly in view here. So when Jesus says next week, love your enemies, this is what he's building towards when he's talking about this, that the disruption of violence, the ender of enmity is in fact love, not Hallmark card love, but a radical kind of Jesus-animated love that creates the possibility of transforming the hate and the violence of the world. It is Jesus-animated love that disrupts the violence all around us. It is Jesus-animated love that is the only possibility of living without fear of violence. So I want to make two quick points from this text about the nature of Jesus-animated love. What does Jesus-animated love look like in the world? And the first thing is that Jesus-animated love is generous. Jesus-animated love is generous. We're going to work backwards through this, starting uh, verses 40 and 42. I think it's on the screen, but I'll read it. It says, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you. Don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. 
Jesus' animated love is generous. An open-handed generosity is a hallmark of radical Jesus' love. In these verses, you have a string of case studies in natural human stinginess. We're stingy when people try to sue us. We're stingy when people want us to go an extra mile with them. We're stingy when someone wants to borrow from us. We're stingy when someone asks for something from us. There's a a string of case studies where we might naturally be closed-fisted, and for good reason. Listen, if a guy is suing me, I'm not going to go to court and say, I know you're asking for X, and I'm going to give you X times two, right? I don't think that's actually what Jesus is talking about here. Give them more than what they're asking for in court. But I think that Jesus is keying in on how closed-fisted we can become. We hoard and hide because others are our opponents. And I think the interesting thing that Jesus is doing is that he's comparing the person that we say no to when they ask to borrow something with the person that we say no to that's suing us. They're the same person because it is about the kind of person we are in that moment. Am I a closed-fisted person or am I an open-handedly generous person? Our closed-fistedness to others corrupts something that we were created to be. We were created to be open-handed, generous, full of love for others, no matter the situation, because that's what radically Jesus-animated love looks like. And we know that. We know that because the New Testament describes again and again and again the radically open-handed, generous nature of God's love for us. Look at these passages describing God's work to us in Christ. First from Ephesians 1. I'm just going to read them hopefully quickly. Paul says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, because he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Or 1 John 3. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we would be called the children of God. Or in Titus 3. At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness of and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. He saved us from our hate and our hate for one another, the text says. Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit that he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Amen? Jesus' love is generous. What does that look like in day-to-day life? Instead of closing my fist, a literal symbol of violence, how do we practice open-handedly generous love like Jesus? Well, maybe more than application points, in my experience, I find that I just need eyes to see it. 
So maybe a simple prayer. Jesus, help me see who is asking. Jesus, help me to give generously to all without finding fault, just as you did for me. Jesus' animated love is generous. That's the first one. The second one is this, that Jesus' animated love is also vulnerable. Jesus' animated love is also vulnerable. Verses 38 and 39. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Jesus' animated love is vulnerable. What does that mean? Here's what it doesn't mean. It, it doesn't mean be a doormat to violence or abuse. It doesn't mean just accept violence directed toward you as though it's sanctioned by God. It doesn't mean that we take the brunt of others' abuse as an act of love. I don't read anything in this text that suggests that God commands us to submit to violence done to us when people are trying to exert power and control over us. So if that's you, please don't submit to that. That's not God's will for you. And if you need help, we can help or we can get you the help that you need. Please don't let anybody use this as, a, as an excuse to keep hitting you in the face. What I read here, though, is uh, not violence or abuse in this kind of power dynamic, but something that's a little more interpersonal. In those instances when someone wounds us in any way, when they metaphorically slap us, do we clap back? Or do we choose a different way? I think that this passage is something much more about transforming our desire for revenge. It's not about submitting to violence. It's about transforming our desire for revenge. Again, this past week has me thinking about the nature of nonviolent engagement during the civil rights movement. One of my personal heroes is a guy named John Perkins, who was a civil rights leader. He also is the founder of the Christian Community Development Association, uh, which is sort of the DNA of this whole place that you're sitting in right now. John Perkins is famous for talking about the fact that in the 60s, when he's experiencing the violence and the hatred of the civil rights movement, that everything in him wanted to fight back. Everything in him wanted to get revenge. Everything in him wanted to get retribution. But that he felt like the Lord helped him to see that unless he was able to forgive even the people giving the hate to him, that there would be no hope of being able to see something other than the hatred that he was experiencing all around him. I think a text like this is like a guiding premise for him. He's not accepting violence. He spent years crusading against violence. But it is, I think, a recognition that radical love does not abide revenge. Radical love chooses the more vulnerable path of forgiveness. We don't abide revenge. It is the more vulnerable path of forgiveness. And the reason why forgiveness is more vulnerable is that forgiveness is no guarantee that that person will not hurt us again. Forgiveness is no guarantee that more violence will never befall us. But in a way, and I think it's important to recognize that, that this is true, in a way, 
forgiveness and vulnerability is a tactic that exposes the shame and the foolishness of violence. It's a tactic that calls the violent to account for the harm that they commit in new ways. And what I mean by that is that this is exactly what Jesus does, and it's exactly what Paul says Jesus does. Jesus is willing to bear up the wounds and the humiliation of violence. He, he absorbs it into his body. And, and he even goes so far as to explicitly forgive the ones who are doing it to him. Because when Jesus does that, Jesus is making a redemptive way possible for you and I. But also, Jesus is exposing the limitations and shortcomings of those who believe that violence is the only way. Jesus is bearing up the violence of the world. When he goes to the cross, when he is beaten and hung there, the world thinks that it has won. The powers and principalities believe they have accomplished their mission. And it is in the moment that they think they have won that Jesus turns the tables over on them. This is what Paul is meaning in Colossians chapter 2. Paul says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, right? Jesus, in accepting that violence, makes a redemptive way possible for you and I. He has nailed it to the cross and having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. It exposes the limitations of violence. The vulnerability of Jesus' love exposes the limitations of it. The the, the great thing about this is that this would have been a, a, a totally radical sentence when it was first read. Because this uh, crucifixion would, would have been called a spectacle execution. Because people would come out and see it. And this is how they, they shored up their power and authority, by putting people on the cross, making a public spectacle of them. Using violence to ensure their power. And Paul says that when Jesus is on the cross, he's making a public spectacle of the powers. It is the way that the violence and injustice of the world gets transformed. What does vulnerable love look like in day-to-day life? Because Jesus died on that hill. We don't have to. But the questions are important. How can I forgive the one who has harmed me? What would it require of me to forgive the violence done to me? Am I willing to risk pain and hurt to forgive rather than get revenge. Because Jesus' animated love is vulnerable like that. And it is this kind of love that actually disrupts the violence. It is this kind of love that actually makes the possibility of peace a reality in the world. We're going to look at one more passage, but just a little bit of context before we read it. In this time period, in the temple courts, there were different places you could go. You couldn't go quite so far in. There were sort of 
arrangements about where people could be. And one of the things that was uh, interesting was when you came into the temple area, there was what was called the Court of the Gentiles. It was a walled-off area that if you were a Gentile believer wanting to come in, you had to actually stay cordoned off in this little area. You couldn't go where everybody else could go. This is uh, first century separate but equal. It's first century segregation is what it is. Literal walls that cordon people off based on ethnic distinctions. We should have all the examples we need in American history to be able to understand what's happening in the court of the Gentiles. If you were Jewish, you can go anywhere. You had total freedom in that regard. And so uh, Paul in Ephesians 2 is trying to think about what is going on on the cross, trying to explain the implications to the church about what is happening when Jesus is triumphing over the powers, making a public spectacle of them. And this is what he says in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, For he, Jesus, himself is our peace, who made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. That is specifically the wall in the court of the Gentiles. That wall has been broken down. That wall that is a metaphor for hostility and division has come down in Christ. And Jesus has set aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. And his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. There is no court of the Gentiles, court of the Jews any longer. Making one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which, to, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we have access to the Father by one Spirit. There is this, I think, longing in all of us to live in a world that is not racked with violence, that we don't experience the fear that comes with it. And that longing, bent out of whack, manifests itself in like a desire to punish through revenge and retribution the people that exert violence in the world. And Jesus is saying there is a different way than that. There's a different way. There is this way of love that is marked by generosity. There's a way of love marked by vulnerability and forgiveness that is the very backbone of the thing that breaks down the dividing walls of hostility to begin with. So if that's the world you want, we can take hope because that is the world that Jesus is bringing into being. And the people of God are the ones that get to walk in that every day. That is the call, I think, to the table. We remember that when we come to this table and the story that the table helps us rehearse, that it is generous and vulnerable love on display for us. And the invitation as we come and we take the body and blood of Jesus and we take it into our own bodies is the reminder that we are called to go out and live what this table represents. So as we prepare to come to the table this morning, I just want to read kind of an extended part of 1 John chapter 3 and 4. Just a way of uh, sort of reflecting and centering ourselves before we come to the table as the worship team comes back up to lead us in song. We have tables in the back and here. Uh, and you can come throughout any of the time of singing that we have. But let's uh, sort of focus our hearts here on the Word of God. This is from 1 John, reflecting on the love of God and the invitation to us. John says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we would be called the children of God. 
So friends, let us love one another because love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever doesn't love doesn't know God because God is love. And this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So friends, since God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one's ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we know that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like Jesus. And there is no fear in love because perfect love drives out fear. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God or hate and then hates a brother or sister is a liar. Whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they haven't. God has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must love their brother and sister. Thank you for listening to Riverside Church. For more resources, visit riverside.church. 